1: to another episode of the family gamers podcast this is episode 349 hey everybody how's it going we
2: are so excited we are almost at 350 episodes but before we get there before we get to that even number we've got to have an odd number first that means it's episode 349 that means we have a guest on the show we are the family gamers as always i'm your host andrew i'm joined by my lovely wonderful wife anitra that's me and we have on the show a very special guest we have the one and only clarence simpson hello sir how are you
0: Hello, hello. I'm doing good. Glad to be here.
2: All right. Awesome. So we're coming off of Origins. Did you go to Origins?
0: I was at Origins, yes, for the first time ever.
2: I'm kind of jealous about that.
0: I am definitely jealous. We'll
2: talk about that a little bit later. It is episode 349. That means I have a fact about none other than the number 349. Are you ready for my really ridiculous fact?
1: What have you got this time? Okay,
2: it's story time. Are you ready? Is everybody ready for story time? (laughs) Let's do it.
1: i get the popcorn.
2: Does everybody remember Pepsi number fever? Does anybody remember?
1: Pepsi <laughs> <number>? <laughs> um, it, it seems like it was one of those contests like buy the Pepsi look under the bottle cap. That
2: is entirely correct. In February of 1992, Pepsi Philippines announced they would print numbers ranging from one to nine ninety nine inside the caps of Pepsi 7 up Mountain Dew and Mirinda. I don't know what Mirinda is. No. Something special of the Philippines. I would it sounds guess. like a mallet instrument to me, but certain numbers could be redeemed for prizes, which ranged from 100 pesos, which is about $4, to 1 million pesos for a grand prize, which is about $40,000 in 1992. Here's where the 349 comes in. On May 25th, 1992, The World Tonight announced that the grand prize number for the day was 349 grand prize winning bottle caps were tightly controlled by pepsico two bottles with caps with that day's winning number were printed inside of them as well as the security code for confirmation had been produced and distributed two of them two however before the contest was extended to add new winning numbers eight hundred thousand regular bottle caps had already been printed with the number 349 <laughs> but without the security code oh no theoretically these bottle caps were cumulatively worth 32 billion dollars Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Thousands of Filipinos rushed to Pepsi bottling plants to claim their prizes. PCPPI initially responded that they erroneously printed bottle caps. And because they didn't have confirmation security codes, they couldn't be redeemed. Newspapers the next morning announced that the winning number was, in fact, 134, which added to the confusion. Oh, no. Blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on. There's a whole thing. There was lots of legal challenges. A bunch of people sued PepsiCo Philippines.
1: What could have been really good press turned into really bad press. Right? (laughs) In
2: January 1993, Pepsi paid a fine of 150,000 pesos to the Department of Trade and Industry for violating the approved conditions of the promotion. But anyway, that's my crazy and wild fact about the number
1: 349.
0: Wow. Yeah. I feel like I should remember that promotion but i it's just a vague memory
2: well i I mean i think it was probably not as big a deal here right like i'm i mean that kind of thing like diet coke did it for the longest time or coke products i guess where there was like a code under the cap and you would like punch it in and you get points or whatever for that dumb stuff i remember we used to get like random coca-cola koozies at the house you know (laughs) kind of thing (laughs) but this was in the philippines so that's probably why uh we're not quite as familiar with it all right So with that being done, we have a message from our sponsor.
1: As a reminder, First Move is letting us know how they would work with a young family earning a combined $100,000 with a net worth of about $25,000 and the goal of buying a home in the next few years. This example mentions student loan debt. So First Move would want to see which kind of repayment plan that these folks are currently on, whether they've consolidated their loans, and what the current status is. There have been clients who were deferring payments each year, at the advice of their loan servicer, to adjust the income on their recertification. This saves them a little bit on monthly payments, but when you go into deferral, all the interest you've racked up is added to the loan's principal. This is a big deal because most student loans only ask for interest on the principal amount, that's the amount originally borrowed, not on any accrued interest. So deferring the loans caused them to balloon.
2: And I don't think these are the kinds of balloons you like.
1: No, I don't think so either. If you would like some advice on your ballooning payments or paying down your student loans in general, go to firstmovefinancial.com/slash family gamers and set up a time for free to talk about what First Move can do for you.
2: Thanks so much to the team at First Move for sponsoring another episode of the show. All right, Clarence. Well, here's the deal. At this point in the show, we talk about some games that we've been playing. So that means that since you're the guest, you get to go first and you get to talk about a game that you've been playing.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I actually, I, I, I talked about going to, to Origins a little bit and I somehow didn't play any published games while I was there. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Too many <laughs> wow. designer friends with unpublished games. But one of them uh, will be published soon. So I'm going to talk about one of those. Sweet. So there's a game called Diatoms by uh, Sabrina Kolba Mm-hmm. Th- this game just won the cardboard Edison award this year, and wow. uh, she is running a Kickstarter for it later this year. i don't I don't know exact timing on this. but anyway, the idea is that it's based on this concept of making microscopic art out of these I think it's algae shapes or whatever. <laughs> so somehow yeah. these the singular single celled, Um, algae that can be either like circles or elongated oval thing or a triangle or a square or a star. And so she's got all these little pieces that you can put into a circular board that looks kind of like you're looking through a microscope lens. There's a whole bunch of places where you can put things and each one can, you can put two different shapes in there. Um, So it's this personal puzzle where you're trying to create symmetry of colors of the pieces you're putting in there and the shapes that you're putting in there. And then there's also a shared puzzle in the middle of the board where you put down these hex tiles where each hex is divided into six wedges and each one corresponds to a color. And then whenever you put three hexes together, you have like an intersection point and the six wedges around that intersection point determine what, shapes you get so like one red wedge would get you a red circle two red, red wedges would get you a red kind of line or oval thing three sure. would get your triangle four square that sort of thing and then after you do that the next person takes their shared turn while you've got the rest of the time to place these pieces into your personal puzzle mm. it looks gorgeous on the table she's got these like iridescent foil-ish stickers on all of the the pieces so they have this kind of shimmery thing going on but it's also got like the game systems and and mechanics to back it up because there's a lot of like really smart design choices in there I I could totally see this just blowing up as a a, you know really big hit gateway game if it gets in front of the right audience oh awesome that's really cool
1: it looks very cool I love that idea of you've got both kind of the common area and your own stuff and all of these different shapes that you're Mm -hmm. working with it looks really pretty
0: it does for sure
2: and so you said that's coming to Kickstarter sometime later this year.
0: Uh, she's already got a you know notify me of launch page, sure. okay. okay, thing cool. going on. So
1: uh, you know, soonish,
0: soonish, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Anitra, do you uh, you want to go next?
1: Sure. So one of the games that you and I have played a little bit more this week has been Dice Hunters of Therion. I think that's going to be our uh, snap review in the break. So I won't go into too much length about it, but this is a really neat dice rolling, press your luck game with sort of a bidding element to it. And it was designed by Richard Garfield, who is famous for having designed Magic the Gathering, among other things.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's done like Robo Rally and some yeah, other stuff Yeah, he's done like a bunch that. of other so stuff. So it's not like Magic is the only thing he ever No, no, no. Yeah. Well, I
1: said among other things. <laughs> All, right.
2: All right. So you did.
1: It's definitely the kind of game where it could be anything where you roll dice and commit some and don't commit others. But it's got this bounty hunting theme. So if you roll swords on your dice, you can commit those to kind of bid on the current warrant that everybody is trying to get the bounty for. But you can also roll coins or more dice on your dice.
2: The artist for this was the same guy who did Everdell. So if you just kind of imagine Everdell art, that's what you're getting in this game. Generally speaking, they're not in any way affiliated, but, you know, same artist. So and it's anthropomorphic animals. So. Yeah, same kind of thing.
1: it's really well done in that you learn pretty quickly in playing it. You don't want to just like I want to roll all swords and just win the bids all the time because there are other ways to get coins. And the winner of the game is whoever is the richest at the end of the game, whoever has the most coins from bounties and from collecting coins. So if you just make it, you know, really hard to beat your bid, then everybody is going to be like, all right, I'm just going to roll as many coins as I possibly can. You know, you want that five coin bounty? Fine. I'm going to see if I can get. 10 coins over here on my turn
2: yeah it's a really interesting way to make the primary puzzle not necessarily be the most rewarding thing that you do
1: it's right? usually the most rewarding yeah. but not yeah. always yeah, so it's, it's a-, a it's a nice balance mm-hmm. i agree i like it a lot hopefully in our review we will describe how the two-player mode works <sighs> better than when we've tried to describe this every before. other time
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. well I don't really want Clarence to steal the spotlight on playing unpublished prototypes. So <laughs> we have played more of the game that I'm working on. We talked about it last week on the show. Do you think it's less terrible from what you've seen, Anitra? Um,
1: Well, I haven't played it again since the last time we talked about it. Uh-huh. But it's definitely starting to come together more. Right now, it's a lot of that working out mechanics and numbers, mostly by feel of like, this was not fun. The board's too big. Let's make it smaller. How much smaller? I don't know. What's the size of the sheet of paper we've got? Let's try that. Yeah.
2: And now I'm looking at it and I'm like, I don't know. We're going to play a three-player game tomorrow with some other people. And I'm actually really nervous how that's going to go because we shrunk the board size so much. But uh, anyway, Clarence, I'm sure you can empathize with, is it less horrible now?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs)
2: So I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about prototyping stuff second half of the show. Maybe we'll get into that. But anyway, the game that I do want to actually talk about some more is we played a four player game of Avant Um This game is still really good. It is. It's just really good.
1: Uh, <laughs> it's, it's coming to Kickstarter in a couple of weeks. Yeah,
2: it is. It's from Resonim. Okay. I was gonna say I didn't think that was out yet, but yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's not. This is another unpublished. I'm, I'm packing all my unpublished prototypes in in, yeah. in, in one go. <laughs> yeah, I really love this kind of deck building Uno style. It's it's really interesting. Whenever you go to play it again, you might just pick a different set of card abilities and it turns the entire game on its head, right? Or yeah, you might come into it thinking, hey, I'm gonna do the, you know, the 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 wild four strategy, but every four that comes up is not the one you want. And when you try to bury cards, you don't get the colors that you want. So you're going to have to go in a different direction or you just keep ending up being unable to create sequences of more than like three. Yeah.
1: Well, and what we're discovering is that in a four or five player game, you do have to be really aware of what other people are doing because the cards that you can buy will run out, which they won't really in a two or three player game unless somebody is going all in on a single
2: number. Yeah. So anyway, so more avant-garde, more awesome. It's really good. And that brings it back around to Clarence. You got to come up with a second game, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. The, the second game I was thinking of actually isn't super new. That's it was okay. probably my most right. played game of 2020, and I just revisited it recently. Uh, then uh, Shipwreck Arcana, which is a, uh, a logic puzzle game sort of thing, a cooperative game. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sounds on paper, it sounds really not fun, but I, <laughs> I kind of love it. Which is so the idea is that everybody has a hand of tiles. That's the tiles are all just numbers one to seven, and then there's these four cards out on the table that are uh, called Arcana cards, and they will say something that would uh, relate to the tiles that you have in your in your hand. So um, on your turn, what you do is you have your two tiles and you put one of them down in front of one of the cards. And the cards would say something like, "If you have two odd numbers, place one of the tiles here," or "If your two tiles add up to seven or higher, place one of the or place the lowest tile here." Right? Or just all these different kinds of arithmetic conditions. And so then uh, you put it there, but you can only put it on one of them. It might actually fit multiple of the cards out there. And then there's also this element of the cards. Uh, what they call fading. Basically, once you put a certain number of tiles out on a card, you're kind of forced to make a guess on what the the other tile is or else you're going to lose points. Actually, I guess I didn't even mention that that was kind of the, the big goal of the game, right? So when you put this clue out here, the, the goal is for the rest of your team to guess the tile that you have left in your hand. Ah, uh, okay. Interesting. One of the reasons I love it is because there's lots of reasons to put a tile somewhere or not. Like you might have multiple ones that fit. And so then you just got to choose one of them. Uh, each number like makes a card fade at a different rate, like slower or faster. So you might want to put something on one that will fade immediately because you think this is enough information for people to guess, or you might want to put it on one slower so that they have more time to get information. And just like the talk back and forth of trying to figure out why people did things or didn't or whatever. And and, and sometimes it's just because, oh, I, I didn't even see that, right? Like it could be
1: mm-hmm, that mm-hmm.
0: simple. But yeah, that one's great. If you like Logic Puzzles, you stuff and check it out.
2: That sounds really interesting. I'm actually kind of curious about that. I don't yeah. Know. I need to try to look it up tonight. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
1: I only have two games left here. And so you play both of them with me, so pick well. Because yeah. well, <laughs> I'm sh- getting the other one. <laughs> so which which one would you prefer that I talk about? I don't care. Okay. You can talk about Big Top. So we've got another game that we're working on for review uh, that requires either three or four players, which is a interestingly restrictive player count. (laughs) This game is called Big Top. It's another version of a bidding game, a more traditional auction style that people are just calling out numbers in turn as you go around the table. But unlike some other games I've seen, like For Sale is a classic open auction bidding game. In Big Top, you are incentivized to make specific number bids because that allows you to Basically put coins on the cards that you already own, because you only get points for cards if you've completed them and filled in all of the spots that they have for coins on them. So you only ever use a single like penny coin, but when you do, you might be covering up the three or the six or the 12 or whatever, which is the bid that you made that turn. And so it makes the bidding jump around in a very interesting way and kind of a tug of war back and forth amongst the players of, well, I want to raise the bidding on this because it's my turn to be the auctioneer. And so the more somebody pays for this card, the more money I get. But if I win the card as the auctioneer, I have to pay and I pay back to the bank and that just removes a bunch of money from the game. So how badly do I want this card and how much do I want to try to get everybody else to bid more on it while also doing this? Oh, well, I really want to bid three, six or nine because that's the open spots I still have to fill on the cards that I have in front of me.
2: Yeah, you touched on the thing that I think is the most interesting about this game, which is that it has a, a mostly closed economy where when the auctioneer picks a card to auction, if somebody who is not the auctioneer buys it, they pay the auctioneer for it. But if the auctioneer buys it, the money goes into the bank. There's very few opportunities to actually get money out of the bank over the course of the game.
1: There's a slow trickle of money out of the bank. But it's
2: not one or two cards purchased by auctioneers will cover all of that. So if anything, the amount of money available in the game spirals down slowly, which makes bidding a little bit more difficult as the game goes on. Because it's not just I need to get a certain number of these cards and I need to get cards in front of me that I think that I can complete. It's also, I need to get my money to other people so that when I'm auctioning a card, they have money to bid on the cards that I have put in front of me. Right,
1: and, and then I can get money back again. Exactly,
2: yeah. It's there's so many different weird financial dynamics in this game. It's really interesting. I didn't know how I was going to feel about this game when we first opened it, but just seeing it, the money kind of dance around like that was really, really fun. And then there's also like, you have to have uh, one of your cards that you've won and completed has to have a star on it. Otherwise, you can't win. No you just get how
1: eliminated well from the game when it's time for yeah. scoring.
2: Like, so there's just a lot of these little things. Uh, this is from all play. I don't remember who the designer is on it. It's called Big Top. It's pretty,
1: it's yeah. So, I mean, with a name like Big Top, it's got a circus theme, I think. Even uh, thematically, it said the first player is whoever is the most scared of clowns, (laughs) because there's a bunch of clowns in the cards, and some of them are pretty freaky looking. I mean, they're not
2: creepy. They're just weird. Right, right. But but there is the whole scared of clowns thing. It's not Pennywise on these cards, right? (laughs) Like It's fine.
1: But yeah, so you've got all of that with... Then additionally, most cards are just worth points, but some of them have stars. And then all of the clowns are cards that score in some kind of different way. Some meta way of like, oh, you get one point for each of your other completed cards, or you get two points for every coin that you still have on the table at the end of the game or whatever. So the clowns really throw an additional monkey wrench into the whole thing. I liked it. I'm looking forward to playing it again. I am glad that the very first time we played it, we played it with all adults because... (laughs) Now that we've played it, I think we can explain it to our kids and help them see why this game should be fun. All
2: right. And that brings it to me for the last one. This is a game that we played last night. And I think just like the first time and maybe the second time that we played this, you crushed me.
1: (laughs) I mean, I wasn't trying to. (laughs) Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, And this is Beer and Bread. So this is a game that is published in the United States by Capstone. I think. And uh, it, it's I mean, look, beer is just liquid bread, right? So it's you a, use
1: all the same ingredients to make beer. Yeah, and it's make a bread, pairing that makes not a combination of
2: hops and bread, but it's a pairing that kind of makes sense. And in beer and bread is a two player only game. You kind of play as villages on opposite sides of a river, and you're playing cards to draft all, all the you know elements that you need to make either beer or bread. All the ingredients. All the ingredients, that's what they're called. Thank you. All the ingredients that you need to make bread and you can either play cards as upgrade cards or you can play cards to harvest whatever icons are on them or you can play cards to use the ingredients that you've collected to bake bread or to brew beer. You know, when you bake or brew stuff, then you have to clean that stuff up so you can't just like keep collecting things and and baking more bread. There's like a whole cleanup mechanic where you have to play upgrades to do cleanup and Every time I play this game, I feel like I just bank wrong on the upgrades that are going to help me win. And so I end up with like seven upgrades, all of which were like, if you collect this, get an extra one. And all of those things that I was trying to collect were not the things that I needed to make the things that were in my hand. So, I don't know. I just kind of threw my hands up in the air. I was like, well, I'm going to suck at this one. (laughs) That's how that went. Have you played any of these, Clarence?
0: Um, No, I don't think so. I'm really bad about playing the New hotness. <laughs> I don't. I mean, beer
2: and bread's not that
1: new. It's it's new enough. That's why I gave it to you for Christmas because yeah. I was able. Yeah, to pack but it I up mean, Christmas
0: was like seven months ago. I know.
1: I, so I mean,
0: that's how bad I am about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you're you're even more bad about the hotness. That's, that's I,
1: I mean, let's be fair. Of all of the games we've talked about so far today, the only one that's more than about a year old is Shipwreck Arcana. So I, I'd say we're we're
2: still in the hotness. Well, that all well. depends on when you define the beginning of a game.
1: All right. Available <laughs> to the public. Because I started working on my year.
2: prototype. I'm just kidding. Eh, I'm just
1: kidding. Yeah, all yeah, yeah. Right,
2: anyway. All right. So with that, I think why don't we, um, we'll take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, Plant, let's talk about what you do in the board game world. Sounds good. We'll be right back. there's all sorts of amazing fantasy worlds in literature, like Narnia or Eternia.
1: Well, this one is called Therion.
2: This is a snack review for Dice Hunters of Therion. Dice Hunters of Therion is a press-your-luck die-rolling and bidding game for two to four players. It was designed by Richard Garfield.
1: Yes, that Richard Garfield who created Magic the (laughs) Gathering.
2: And it's published by Amigo.
1: So what about the art in this game?
2: Let's talk about it. So this game could really be themed basically anything. Uh, We'll get into that in a minute. But the art in this game by Dan May, who did Everdell, transports us to a world full of anthropomorphic animal heroes and villains. There are four player mats with full-color illustrations and seven of these line-drawn wanted posters. The rest of the game is cardboard coins and special dice. They're fine. They're fine. So let's talk about the mechanics of this game. How do you play Dice Hunters of Therion? In this game, you play as bounty hunters in this magical land of Therion, and your goal as a bounty hunter is to have the most money.
1: So how do you earn money? There are two ways, by bidding on warrants and by rolling up coins on your dice. On your turn, you roll your dice. You set aside any that you'd like to lock. You may re-roll any dice that you want, once or twice.
2: Up to three total rolls of your dice.
1: When you're all done rolling, you take actions depending on what the dice show. Any dice that shows swords are devoted to chasing a villain. Put them next to the current warrant, but only if the number of swords you have are greater than the number of swords already assigned there. If you beat out another player for the number of swords, they must take back their dice. If any of your dice show a coin, you're then collecting coins that the villain dropped while they were running away.
2: But maybe you're a lover, not a fighter. Which is weird for a bounty hunter, but whatever. If none of your dice show swords after your last roll, collect twice as many coins as the number you actually rolled. Ooh, money! Money is good in this game. Lastly, some of your dice, the white and the yellow ones, might show more dice. (laughs) Every white that shows a yellow or yellow that shows a red means that you add another die to your party, which you can start using on your next
1: turn. Unfortunately, the yellow and the red dice can also easily leave your party. Anytime you roll an X on these, you immediately lose these dice back to the reserve on your player mat, with no re-rolling. Those mercenaries.
2: So what happens with the warrants? Well, if your dice are still next to the stack of warrants when it comes back around to your turn, that means that nobody has outbid you and you have captured the villain. Grab that top warrant card and flip it over so it shows coins. You'll then start the hunting for the next bounty.
1: When the last warrant is taken, the game immediately ends. Everyone counts up their coins, including the ones on the warrants they hold. And the richest player wins.
2: There is a variation for two players to keep the game a little bit more interesting. If your dice are still next to the warrants on your next turn, then you take them back and you put your dual marker in their place. Roll your dice as usual and commit swords to the warrants again. If your opponent outbids you, you'll remove your dual marker and your dice, but if your dual marker is there on your next turn, then you win the Warrant.
1: Basically, to win a Warrant, you need to not be outbid twice in a row. This variation also uses fewer Warrants to keep the game moving.
2: So Nitra, what did we expect from Dice Hunters of Therion?
1: This looked like a pretty simple dice game, but when I saw Richard Garfield's name, I was immediately intrigued. I'm not exactly sure how the fantasy animal bounty hunter theme fits in, (laughs) but it does seem to work.
2: I agree with you. We did kind of say it at the top, right? This could have been themed to just about anything. It's really basically a bidding mechanic, but if it's Richard Garfield, it's a pretty good chance it's going to be fantasy or maybe sci-fi. But what about this game surprised us?
1: I really liked the combination of the press-your-luck dice rolling and the bidding. There's a surprising amount of tension involved. Do I want to commit a lot of swords up front, and then maybe no one will try to outbid me? Or do I want to try for mostly coins right now?
2: Yeah, I felt this too, I really liked the fact that you could be meaningfully competitive in this game just through getting coins from your dice. If the warrant bids go around the table a couple of times, you can actually build up a pretty impressive purse without ever actually winning a bounty. This is even more true with more players at the table. In a two-player game, you have to be the outbidder
1: At least once in a while. At
2: least once in a while. But that might not be the case for a game where you're playing with three or four players.
1: So, Andrew, do we recommend Dice Hunters of Therion?
2: Well, this game is rated for ages 8+, and that feels just about right. Although, you could play with younger kids as long as they're not super competitive kids, because the mechanics aren't complicated. If your family likes dice chuckers, and you're looking for something a little bit more strategic than, like, strike or roll for it... Dice Hunters of Therion might be just the ticket.
1: So, Andrew, what are we going to rate this game? Well, I think
2: we're going to give Dice Hunters of Therion three and a half warrants out of five.
1: And that's Dice Hunters of Therion. In In a a snap. snap. We're back. We are here with Clarence Simpson, and I think we're probably going to talk a little bit about designing games and maybe some I other hope stuff. So.
2: I hope we're going to talk about designing games. So, <laughs> Clarence, would you like to tell the studio audience how I first found out about you as a board game designer? Because I know you know.
0: Uh, you mean for Merchants of Magic? Is
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So, Clarence is the designer of Merchants of Magic, which Claire said on last week's show was her favorite board game having mm-hmm. to do with magic, which was fantastic because i love this game this is the game that i think it might be the only roll and write that i've ever played solo maybe the only board game i've ever seen i'm not a solo board gamer but there's just there's just some kind of special sauce in this game (laughs) that i just really like it it hits all of my pleasure centers it's a great game i appreciate it and then uh i i think it was the board game meetup at pax unplugged 2021 the one that was like Stephen Bonacore and Paula Deming and and all those people. I know you went there because I walked into you. I was like, you're Clarence Simpson. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, hi. I'm like, (laughs) I totally like fangirl. I don't even fan. I'm not even that person. I don't do that.
0: And I did.
1: Except in this case, you did. I totally did. But that's okay.
2: Was it it as awkward for you as it was for me? (laughs) I
0: I mean, that was my first ever major con and definitely my first time in a, any sort of like industry mixer. I didn't know what to expect. So I'm just all kinds of weirded out by everything, right?
2: Oh, great. Okay, great. So I just faded into the weirdness of everything. Yeah, was, yeah for perfect. sure. That's actually exactly what I want. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. All right. Thank you so much for making me feel a little bit better. But anyway, so, so we got to talking about that. And of course, that is not the only game that you've made. You've made some other games, even games that have been published.
0: It <laughs> is true.
2: All right. So what else might people have heard of?
0: Uh, so the biggest one as of now is the Wolves, which is a co-design with Ashwin Kamath through Pandasaurus, published through Pandasaurus. That's definitely been my most successful one so far. Um, and then uh, another one that went to Kickstarter back in, I think it was February, was Chomp through All Play. It's supposed to be available at Gen Con. I know they're they're running actually a little bit ahead of schedule on fulfillment. Wow, so that's amazing. Uh, yeah, pretty soon.
2: All right, cool. All right. Well, see, seeing as we've been talking about unpublished prototypes, let's talk about the process of prototyping a game. Okay. And, we, and we've and we had designers on the show before who have kind of talked about their principles and things like that. And I even mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I finally got my game to the table that everybody says the first thing that you need to do is get your game to the table or get it to the table as early as possible. And I, I found that to be way more helpful than I thought it would be. How do you mm. feel about that as kind of a mantra? And how do you approach this whole
0: thing? So I, I think it depends, right? Like, I, I think... Especially if you're a pretty new designer, I think that can be really helpful because you, you don't have this kind of knowledge base of like the impact of your design decisions so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I think it maybe becomes bad advice, especially if the, the people you're testing with are, are other designers, right? And you just meet with them once a week or once a month or whatever. The amount of time you have with them is pretty limited and, and you want to kind of take advantage of that. And so kind of for me now, I do a lot of design kind of in my head right and like driving in the car or whatever right like i'll mm-hmm. think about if i make this change to the game what will it do and i'll try my best to like play out imaginary turns in my head and try and think of what the impact that would be to other players and sometimes doing that i'll be like oh no that's a terrible idea i see what's going to happen <laughs> right and that just saved myself a whole week or however long of t- bringing it out into play test group and playing other people's stuff for hours right like i, I kind of skip that process and and I feel like I get to iterate a little bit faster by doing hmm. that. But with that said, again, I, I think it can be very helpful for some people for sure.
2: So what's, uh, what are some of the the key parts of your design philosophy or strategy that help you cycle through these things faster?
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, I would say definitely trying to um, always, or at least almost always present players with interesting decisions, mm-hmm. right? Like if I'm, playing through something you know in my head or on the table and i realize oh this is the obvious thing to do every time then to me that's less interesting it's gonna be less engaging for for players so in almost all situations i'll try to either add some other system or you know uh think of some reason why you wouldn't want to do that thing that seems so good right now
2: right yeah that is absolutely something that i ran into when we were playing my stuff Mm -hmm. uh i found That like three or four turns in, my side of the board and my son's side of the board looked eerily similar. And I was like, okay, that's a problem. (laughs) But that's actually really hard because my kids came from me, right? And they grew up in my house. And so they think the way that I do. So at least in some ways, right? So that whole process becomes a little bit muddled because it's like, I think this is telling me that I need to create more interesting decisions, but maybe he and I just think the same way. You know what I mean? So. Mm. So that's something like I should play it with Claire, my daughter, our daughter, because she and I are personality-wise very similar but we very clearly make different decisions about <laughs> the way we go about things. So, I don't know, yeah. I'll have to bribe her with chocolate or something.
0: I mean, some of it you can tell your yourself too, right? Like even if you're making the same decisions, if you if you had to agonize over it or mm-hmm. you, or you at least had to pause, right? And mm-hmm, think mm-hmm is this the right thing to do? I should yeah. maybe do this instead, right? Like that that's enough to, to make you feel like it's an interesting decision, I think.
2: Yeah, because if, you, if you're presented with choices, but there's only one choice that's actually interesting, like are you really presented with choices? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another thing I love to ask people is, I, if you've only got a couple of published designs, I assume board game design is not your full-time gig. How did you get into this whole thing? Like, is this, it's just always been a part of your life. It's just like, how did this all happen?
0: Right. Yeah, so it is definitely not my full-time <laughs> gig. As far as like how I got into board game design, like I would say I would say there were seeds of that kind of stuff planted even as a kid. Uh, like I remember being probably like 10 years old or something like that and playing uh like D&D with my dad. And we didn't have a group or anything. It's like he would craft these dungeons for me to go through and be the D- DM for me and then I would do the same like I would craft dungeons and be the dm for him and I, and there's definitely an element of game design in doing that right sure. you're you're crafting an experience for a player and i remember also making some weird sort of fantasy dungeon crawl board game <laughs> thing as a as a kid around that mm-hmm. same time like scribbled sure. mm-hmm. out on paper yeah, yeah, yeah just ridiculous stuff right so I, I think that was all there from from a very young age and then i you know as i got older i just kind of forgot all about it i was much more into to video games for a long time and then I eventually started my career doing video game development. That's been my main day job for, for most of my career. Oh, cool. And the first time or my first real video game development job, the guy that helped me get that job, the friend of mine, he actually was really big into board games and he kind of introduced me to the modern board game hobby that I was completely unaware of. So he mm-hmm. like put Carcassonne on the table and showed it to me and it blew my mind. Right. Like the, this is nothing like any other board game I've ever played, and just fascinated me. Uh, and coincidentally, around that same time, there was a board game shop that opened across the street from my house. So now I'm suddenly like going there constantly <laughs> with their game nights and like exploring all the, the kind of stuff that they have there. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: That's kind of how I got in, into the, the hobby. And then eventually, I do remember, like in 2009 or so was the first time I ever uh, saw on board game geek. There was an ad for the game crafter, which sounded like this crazy idea idea to me. Like I can just go upload some pictures and push a button and they just make a board game. That sounds amazing. And so (laughs) I was like real into their forums and stuff for a while. And I ended up making this weird, I don't want to call it a chess variant, but I used chess pieces in it where it was like an abstract sort of area control game, but it was also real time where I used like these sand timers Okay. Where each like piece had a sand timer, and so once the sand fell, you could move that piece, and then you had to flip it. Uh, and it was huh. weird, and it worked, but like I was wasn't really happy with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I really just kind of played it with like one or two coworkers was my entire playtest pool for that game. Mm-hmm. But I was also starting to learn then about like how the game industry works, and I remember seeing a few articles about pitching to game publishers that was the first time I knew that designers could exist outside of a publisher, right? Like as an external sure. entity. Yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I always thought right. Because was like, in
1: the video game world, that doesn't really happen unless you exactly. call yourself an indie studio and you're like two or three people.
0: Right. Right. I, I had always assumed it was in, in-house designers. And so then that, at that time, I remember reading about Z man at the time was, just open to accepting pitches and there was like an email there where i could uh email zev who was working (laughs) there at the time and they were one of the few publishers i knew because of pandemic and stuff (laughs) of course and so i ended up i remember writing an email pitching that real-time abstract game to zev and was surprised that i actually got a response fairly quickly which said like uh number one we're we're not really interested in abstract games number two we're doing a real-time game right now uh which surprised me i was like really and then i eventually found it later but they really did do that he wasn't just like (laughs) blowing smoke to (laughs) get rid of me but yeah so after that i was like i don't know what to do now i i pitched it I, i didn't know how to like make it better or like who to show it to or anything like that so i honestly didn't do any more game design for about 10 years after that and then wow uh yeah i know and then in 2019 i was at I was still in board games as a hobby and would go to like local conventions and stuff like that. But in 2019, I went to a local con where the game designers of North Carolina had a table set up, and they were there were designers there showing some of their prototypes, and they had like this bag of games they were giving away as prizes for playtesting. And I was like, okay, I like free games. I'll sit down and started talking to them, and uh, you know, realizing that. They're a group that has existed for for a while, and they meet like basically every week for four hours and play test each other's games. And there's people that already have published games on store shelves in that group. And suddenly, I was like, maybe I can do this, right? Like now, I know I have this connection with people that know what to do and how to do it. I just need to like insert myself into that group and just learn as much as I can. So yeah, like early 2019, I started going to the game design meetings and just dove head first into all that started listening to all the game design podcasts that I could find. And yeah, that was that was kind of the start of all of it right there.
1: That's, uh that's really impressive. I don't think I've heard anyone else say like, hey, I tried this. And then it didn't go over well. And I stopped. <laughs> i stopped and for a and, decade and well, and, yeah. and, re- and rediscover it again later I, yeah. I, that's really cool and hopefully inspiring to some of our listeners uh as it is to me that just because you tried something and it didn't work in the past you might have just needed some time and a different environment
2: yeah, to try sure. again yeah or or it may even be like you are going through a season of life where you can't Put extra things in it, so you have to put something down, right? <laughs> and um, that's me. Yeah, a- and then you can you can come back to it after the fact. I mean, I think that's certainly you know an important potential perspective as well. So you came back to it. You joined. Um, do I remember from Tantrum Con? G Donk, is that what you guys call it? Right.
0: <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah.
2: <laughs> How did that turn into Emergence of Magic, which is tied into a world? Right? Like it's it's sure. part of the set of watch worlds. So like how did that happen?
0: Yeah. So I mean the original genesis of Merchants of Magic was from this sort of um online convention, I guess you could call it uh, called Gen Cant. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Suzanne Sheldon runs Gen Cant. And in twenty nineteen, for Gen Cant, they, she she would sometimes run a design contest, and in 2019, the design contest was to design a Roll and Write using polyhedral dice.
1: I think I remember that, yeah.
0: Because uh, she was like, she's obviously a big fan of Roll and Writes, and there weren't really hardly any that used anything other than d sixes, yep. which I thought was weird. And I started mm-hmm. like doing a little research, and I was like, oh man, she's right. There's almost all of them are just d sixes. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it for a while, and like, yeah, why why can't you do that? There's no reason you couldn't make something interesting with polyhedral dice so yeah so then i started thinking about okay well what can i do with like a d6 a d8 d10 well, like why does that matter why is it important two things th- made me kind of steer down the the path i did one was polyhedral dice tend to be associated with like D or role-playing games in general so i mm-hmm. thought why not let's let's start with a, a you know like some sort of fantasy setting right because that'll be at least kind of familiar to the the whole polyhedral dice components and then the other thing i thought was like okay maybe maybe the the type of dice are related to like the rarity of of something maybe the number that you roll has something to do with how easy or hard it is to get some material or whatever right and so then Mm -hmm, i started mm -hmm. thinking about crafting stuff at one point i had actually gone down this path of uh having like like shelves that you would populate with items uh on Hmm. some sort of board uh, eventually scrapped that pretty quickly, but that first kind of prototype, which it was called Yield Magic Shop at the time, had the polyhedral dice from the very first time, and I had it divided in half where the like crafting was on the left and, and these enchantments were on the right, and generally like you wanted high numbers to do crafting and you wanted low numbers to do um, the... The spell research uh, this mm-hmm. again, going back to like the interesting decision things, right, like I didn't want high numbers to always be good. I wanted there to be a reason that you would want mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. low numbers sure. as well that makes sense. so yeah, that was kind of uh kind of where it all started, I think i I didn't want to do any kind of like dungeon crawl thing that seemed like really well treaded territory that I didn't feel like I could add a lot to mm-hmm. so then the the idea of a magic item shop when I'm thinking about fantasy and crafting, that was kind of where it led me to
2: sure. So how did you get hooked up with Michael for the oh, right. whole yeah. watch so, thing?
0: Yeah. So I was pitching it around or I started pitching it around uh, Pax Unplugged in 2019 and had uh, you know some good meetings come from that. Two publishers that were like really interested in it. One that eventually made me an offer. It didn't work out. And then I went through this kind of like gosh, it was probably like eight month period of like, what am I even doing with this game, right? Like I felt like (laughs) I'd pitched it out to almost everyone I could think of. But I ended up getting connected with Heather O'Neill over at Ninth Level Games. yeah, And she started running these online speed pitch events. This was like pandemics in full swing at this point. And so nobody's going to cons or anything anyway. So she was doing these uh, speed pitch events where about 10 or so designers would be Uh, hooked up with 10 or so publishers. And then you would have like, I don't remember what the time is, something like five or seven minutes with each publisher to pitch your game. So just back to back to back all real quick kind of thing. And so I I did that with the intention of pitching what was the old magic shop at the time and pitched it to all the publishers. And Mike from Rockmaner Games was actually not one of them. There were actually two kind of sessions for the speed pitching, and he was in the the opposite session as <laughs> me, right? So oh. we actually didn't meet up on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember seeing like uh, we got the list of publishers, and I saw Rock Manor. I'm like, I don't know who Rock Manor is. I I sure. hadn't heard of them at, at all yeah. at that point, yeah. So I didn't think anything of it. But luckily, Mike went through and looked through all the cell sheets of all the uh, the designers' prototypes, oh, hey, including nice. the ones that weren't in his session. So he actually contacted me. A couple of days after the speed pitch, and asked about it, and asked if he could, um, you know, see a, a demo of it, which was great because I, you know, I'd already had it set up in Tabletop Simulator at the time, so we could do a demo mm-hmm. remotely mm-hmm. and everything. And so, yeah, probably a few days later after that, we we ran a demo, and coincidentally, he had his kind of flagship game set a watch. He was working on the sequel to it at the time. And the big thing that he was adding to the sequel was a merchant character where you could buy something. Mm-hmm. And so he saw me with my game about a magic item shop and felt like, oh, this, this is just like too perfect, right? A spinoff about that merchant character that he's adding. So yeah, so he, he was really interested in that being a, a spinoff of, of Set of Watch, made me an offer for it real quick, was like real excited to get moving on it and mm-hmm. started rolling yeah, real real quick on that
2: started rolling polyhedral dice.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that is such a cool story. You know, I always wonder about stuff like that, like when you have a bunch of different games and in the same universe and how those all relate together. And mm-hmm. I guess it just happens to happen sometimes, right?
1: Sometimes yeah. it's just serendipity. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. And then the Wolves, totally different game. Totally different game. There is nothing. (laughs) There is no similarity between... This is not Clarence iterating on a well-defined previous skill. This is a totally, (laughs) totally different game. So how did this one come to be?
0: Yeah, so that's a problem I have is like trying to do... I I like doing different stuff too much. Yeah, so like now I'm working on a bunch of like light, almost party kind of games. (laughs) It's weird. Whatever. Anyway, so the Wolves. Yeah, how did that come to be? So I, uh, my co-designer Ashwin, he and I got hooked up through the Tabletop Mentorship Program, which is this you know, really cool program that people basically volunteer their time to be mentors, as well as people signing up like to be mentees. And it's all not for profit or anything like that. It's just people, you know, in the industry, just being generous with their time trying Mm -hmm. to help people coming up. And so I had signed up to actually be both mentee and mentor at the same time, because I, at the time I was just about to like pitch Yield Magic Shop for the first time. And I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never done that before. So I wanted some help with that. But I'd also been prototyping and testing stuff for, I guess, nine months or so by that point. So I I felt like I had some advice to offer to people that had never done any of that before. So I offered uh, to to be a mentor as well. And Ashwin ended up being one of my mentees. And so yeah, we had you a know, really good three-month session where we talked back and forth. And Tried to help him, you know, brainstorm through his ideas and stuff. Like he was this super passionate guy about board games and about like the idea of designing stuff like that. And and we you know we got along really well. We kept in touch after the session was over, and then eventually we talked about trying to do a co design together. Then, of course, we were just it was totally blank slate. We didn't have a particular idea about what to do it on, and sort of randomly, the reason we ended up going with the wolves was because. Uh, Ashwin is a big fan of the Minnesota Timberwolves, the basketball okay. team. Yep, yep. And I went to NC State, which is the home of the Wolf Pack. And so <laughs> two wolves things and he was sure. like, "Why don't we make a Wolves game?" And I started one thing I always do with, with an idea like that first is like do some competitive research, see what's out there. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, I didn't see any there really Wolves games out there about being the Wolves. Generally the Wolves were bad guys or obstacles or um you know, things like that, right? There wasn't a, a game, it, with maybe one exception, there wasn't really a game with the wolves as the protagonists of the of the game. Uh, so it seemed like a solid idea that had, like, kind of space in the market to exist. And, the, yeah, so then we just kind of ran with it. As wolves do. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All
0: right, awesome.
2: Well... I feel like I've, I've kicked this can down the road far enough. So I have to ask about the expansion to Merchants of Magic. Yeah. I actually, honestly, other than knowing that it's a thing, I know absolutely nothing about it at all. So I'm, I'm a complete blank slate. Hit me.
0: Okay. All right. So uh, Merchants of Magic expansion is uh, titled Dangerous Business. We don't have a definitive Kickstarter date, but it will be going to Kickstarter like September, October-ish. Uh, it'll be for the expansion as well as a, uh, a reprint of the original Merchants of Magic. Um, as far as for what's in the expansion, it's actually going to be like a couple different modular expansions that you cool. can kind of swap in and out as you like. And so I'll, I'll kind of cover a couple of them. One of them is we're adding a few more. Well, if you remember in the base game, there were like all the kind of uh, single enchantment items, and then there's also double enchantment items that're tougher mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. get as well yeah. as worth more points. Uh, in the expansion, we're adding I think we're calling them bundled orders where instead of two enchantments and one item, it's one enchantment and two items. So another kind of like spin on that. and then the the more important thing is that we're having those in a central market. So what you're gonna have to do, uh, the idea is that these are now these customers that don't really come to your store they're like connoisseurs that you kind of have to advertise to lure them into your store. Sure. So, um, there's now this, I don't remember if we have a name for it yet. I think it's, we're calling it the advertising phase, which is like this phase before all the, the stuff in the, the base game. Mm-hmm. And in that advertising phase, you're going to be choosing, everybody is choosing an action to do simultaneously. And so one of the things that you can do is to advertise to one of these Advanced orders that are in the center of the table mm-hmm. saying that you want to reserve it, meaning that you don't necessarily plan to complete it right this second, but you you want it as a goal that you can work towards, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Like you're taking an
0: order from someone. <laughs> exactly, right? Okay. Yep. And so that's that becomes a goal that you can work towards. And you can reserve as many um, items as you want, but if you don't complete them, then there's a negative two coin penalty. Like Think of it like the cost of advertising sure, sure. To, to them that you didn't kind of pay out on. So, uh, yeah, that's one, one thing. And then another action that you could do instead of that is to just get a, an extra potion. That's kind of like a, a baseline action that you can do. Uh, and then we also have these potion recipe cards, which uh, the idea here is that in the original game, there are three different colors of potions. And that is going to matter now in the expansion. <laughs> okay. So the we're, it's also coming with a bag. So the potions will be drawn from a bag. So you can do it blindly without knowing what colors you're getting nice and then there's going to be eight different recipes one associated with each uh, enchantment so there would be like elixir of the dragons or whatever right and then uh, again during the advertising phase you're choosing this action of either like taking a potion token or advertising to one of the orders in the center or taking a recipe so there'll be a couple of recipes out on the table and you can take one of those recipes, mm-hmm. which then gives you an ability that you can use in the future. So the ability would be like spend a red potion and a purple potion to maximize one of your dice.
2: Instead of giving it like sure, plus two, sure. you could go from like a one to a six or something. Exactly, like, right. I love it, I love it.
0: Or uh, another one that is letting you ignore the, uh, the die restriction, right? Like so you could spend a D12 on that first column the steel oh yeah yeah, yeah. if you've got the right value yeah but it's not the right Right. okay gotcha
1: well and that that ties really nicely into um as you said using the different dice for different things was key in your initial design i love how the d6 in the regular game is only ever used for things where you want high numbers right and the d12 is only ever used for things where you want low numbers
0: right right exactly yeah so some of that will be
1: (laughs) will be flipped Andrew's uh, shaking his fist angry. <laughs> uh,
0: in this expansion. And then another thing uh, that's important about the recipes is that, like I said, they're all tied to an enchantment. So if the Elixir of the Dragons, for example, requires you to do a red and a purple potion, if you also have the enchantment of the dragons completed, then you can ignore those color restrictions and use any two potions. Oh, see, mm-hmm,
2: that's, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. Yeah. I like that, too.
0: So that's a, another kind of uh, that whole recipe thing is another module of the game. And then another one that we have is there's going to be eight new adventurers that are a replacement for the uh, original eight adventurers. Oh, good. And the, the way it's going to work there is going to be a little bit more complicated than it was before. It's going to be like a little a sideboard that should be like the height of the player sheet where mm-hmm. uh, it sits right beside your player sheet and you can complete uh, a lot more potential items, uh, magic items for that adventurer. Right. So like in the original one, adventure just wanted three items, like three shocking items or whatever. And in this one, they'll have like a menu of like 12 different shocking items that you could make for them. And each one would give them a certain strength or combat value. Because now what we're having is a set of creatures or monsters that are attacking the, the town. And you're equipping the adventurers with these items to fight off the monsters. And so each monster is going to have a defense value that you basically need to have a combat value higher than the the defense value. And then whenever you have that, you can choose to defeat it and get some kind of reward. And these rewards are are replacements for the original three adventure rewards. Like in the original one was always three potions and then, you know, mark any circle. Mm -hmm. So now there's much more different uh, kind of reward. There's four tiers of monsters. So you deal out one tier, one monster, one tier two, one tier three, one tier four, mm-hmm. every game. So there's a lot more like variability in that, depending on which monsters come out uh, and which mm-hmm. kind of powers they give you. And um, yeah, that's, that's the, the monster kind of adventure module. And then there's also another sort of, I guess you'd call it like an enhanced solo mode that is going to be in the game. Uh- <laughs> you are killing me.
1: You are speaking his language. Oh, man.
0: <laughs> but the idea now is that the there will be a sort of an AI player, right? Like, you know, in the, in the solo mode that's in the base game, you just have your cards and then a couple to the side, and it's just like a conveyor belt that mm-hmm. goes a- away. In this other solo mode, there will be a set of four cards that kind of belongs to the AI, and will actually rotate around much like a two-player game would. Um, and then depending on your die rolls, sometimes those cards will disappear sometimes they won't sometimes uh, you'll have to compete with them to get the the mastery depending on the die rolls and stuff like that so that'll just be another kind of challenge i guess for the solo fans out there
2: i'm ready (laughs) drop in the mail today i'm ready
0: (laughs) (laughs) i you know it's funny one of my
2: other all-time favorite games is role player and like a lot of what you're describing is kind of what came in the first expansion of role player which is monsters and minions where they Mm. were like you know you kind of want to do something here right
1: you're you're equipping this adventurer they should have something to do now that they're all equipped i'm yeah. on
2: board man i'm on board <laughs> let's do this
1: i mostly like that expansion because it makes it more possible to actually accomplish all of the things <laughs> in the base
2: game <laughs> well, that's one of the great tensions of the game though is like the, i know the, as the items move by you're
1: like no wait no i can't get you on the next turn no, Where are oh, you go going? Back.
2: yeah that's one of the great things about it it makes it so good oh man
1: well that is really cool Besides the expansion to Merchants <laughs> of Magic*, do you want to tell us about anything else that's uh, coming up?
0: Yeah, I can. I mean, so I, I have two things coming out that are not officially announced, but have been soft announced. So, like, if you you know scrounge around on Twitter or BGG forums, you'll it's so it's sort of public knowledge. Hmm. So I feel like I can say this right. Um, one is an expansion for the Wolves that should be coming out sometime next year. I, I don't think there's any specific release date okay. um, on that yet. I don't think I can say more about what's in it at the moment, but okay. uh, it exists. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fair.
0: The other big thing that's coming uh, is another game I have signed with all play, that'll be coming to Kickstarter in October. I think if I have my dates, right. Uh, and that one's called a message from the stars. And it is a weird logic word game. If that makes excellent any so, sense at See, all. now you're on
2: her. Now she's freaking out about this one. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, locked in. Yep.
0: Yeah. So uh, you kind of have to like word games and logic puzzles, uh, yes, to enjoy this. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it it's the kind of thing that might end up being really divisive. That you know a lot of people might just bounce hard off of. But there are also some people who like really love this game, I think. So the idea is that there is a team of scientists that are communicating with an alien, right? And so this, uh, at the table, there's this alien with a screen uh, and some hidden information behind it. Think like Mysterium-style uh, mm-hmm. cards behind it. And the idea is that you're going to be sending messages back and forth from the scientists to the aliens, which are just single words, And you are trying to send words that are kind of like party game, guess the word style clues, but also there are certain letters of the alphabet that make the alien happy or angry, and you don't know which is which. And the way this works is that every time you say a word, the alien will give you back a reaction value, which is like a number. And that reaction value is based on what letters are used in the word. So some letters will be like plus one to whatever that value is. Some letters will double the value. And then some letters will make the whole thing negative. So you might say the word pepperoncini and then the alien will tell you back negative 12. And (laughs) then you have to start like counting the letters and be like, okay, wait, there's three Ps. That could be the, no, that can't be the doubler. Maybe that's the plus one, right? You're doing all this kind of deduction Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, back and mm -hmm. forth about um, what the, the, the kind of these secret rules are that are behind the alien screen. But at the same time, you're also still trying to send words that are going to get the alien to guess uh, your secret words, right? Like your secret word might be salad. So then pepperoni would be a good
2: clue mm-hmm, word to mm-hmm. give. So the scientists have a secret word and the aliens have secret letter value things? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So is it always you have a plus one and you have a doubler and you have a flip negative so there's always change
0: there's always three that are would be three letters that are plus ones okay two letters that are doublers and one letter that's a negative
2: so if you had two of the negative one would it just not change it
0: uh it would still be negative any any number of the negative letters would make the the number negative
2: i am intrigued (laughs)
1: <laughs> this this could be a, a cool family game, especially yeah, now that it's really
2: fun to play as a family. I yeah, do.
1: well, and it's especially now that our family is of an age where we really can enjoy word games together mm. as long as it's not the kind of word game where it's like I get the most points by making super long words because right. you know our eight year old and frankly, even our 12 year old are really not at that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a game where actually short words can be really helpful because you're trying to figure out what letters do what things, right? Like, so if you right. suspect the letter N is something, saying the word like net could be great. Yeah, right? because yeah. Because it could only be one of three letters.
2: That was my first thought when you said pepperoncini. I was like, wow, that's that's a lot of information that's yeah. all getting jumbled up,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> so yeah,
2: that, wow, that I'm, I'm into that. I'm, I definitely would like to try that out. That'd be a lot of fun.
1: That seems very cool yeah
2: well i think that's a show anitra what do you think i i think so i think so all right clarence thank you so much for coming on the family gamers podcast i really appreciate it it's been a lot absolutely i'm now excited for basically everything you're making <laughs> so
0: there we go that's fair that's enough good.
2: hey if, if uh if people wanted to reach out to you online what's the best place for them to go do that
0: uh, probably on Twitter. Uh, I'm still on there, and my handle on Twitter is at Stoic Hamster. Right. Is there a story behind that, too? <laughs> uh, a little bit of one, but it, <laughs> <laughs> nothing terribly interesting. All
1: right. All right. Um, we will link to that in our show notes as well. How would people get a hold of us, Andrew?
2: Well, uh, we're also on Twitter at FamilyGamersAA. Uh, that same handle works on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. It works on YouTube. You can head over to the Facebook community, which is where we have a lot of our conversations by going to thefamilygamers.com forward slash community or by just searching the Family Gamers community on Facebook. It'll come right up. We have like almost 700 people in that community just talking about family games and you know games that maybe you'd be surprised to find out work well as a family game. We have a lot of those kinds of conversations as well. So a lot of good stuff happening in the community. Of course, if you wanted to just send us an email, you could always email me, Andrew, at thefamilygamers.com.
1: Or you can email me, Anitra, at thefamilygamers.com.
2: So don't forget about our merchandise. It is summertime. You need some new t-shirts. You can head over to thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch to pick up some Family Gamer swag or some A Balanced Life swag as well.
1: Yes, if you like video games and board games, that is what the Balanced yeah, Life t-shirt is that's what that Balanced Life shirt's all about. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you're hearing. Tell your friends about the podcast, whether or not you like it, just so more people know that we exist. That would be great. And maybe even leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or any of the big podcast aggregation services. Family Gamers is sponsored by First
2: Move Financial. Head over to firstmovefinancial.com slash familygamers to learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points.
1: Thanks again to First Move for sponsoring the show. And I think that's it. That's a wrap. We have made a podcast.
2: All right. (laughs) Thanks again, Clarence, for coming on. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. And so for everybody else out there, until next week,
1: play play games games with with your kids. kids.